3: Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. I'll be keeping you company for the next hour or so. Now we've got some great guests lined up for you as always. So please stay tuned as we're going to discuss some of the hot topics today. So one of them is about setting up a political party. Is it as simple as it seems? Is it like starting up a new business? And is there even space for a new party in Ireland right now? And later on in the show, news groups are in the grip of a long-term battle to retain their audience so says a report from the Reuters Institute. Now Liam Collins is a journalist and a former news editor for the Sunday Independent and Emma Connolly is an academic who's looked at the media landscape here in Ireland and she's going to be joining us with Liam to talk about the plight of journalists and journalism who are caught up in this struggle. And finally Liv Golf has been hitting the headlines of late for the reverse takeover of the PGA Golf Tour. Well Liv is only one of an number of investments that are made by an entity with billions of dollars. It's called the Saudi Arabia Sovereign Wealth Fund and we're going to be looking at it in much greater detail a little later on in the show. As always, you can get in contact with us on takingstockatnewstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at Stock NT. Discussions on a new rural party here in Ireland and indeed some discussions in the UK with suggestions that Boris might even start up a political party of its own. But how difficult is it to actually set up a political party? Is it the same as just running an ordinary business? Well, I'm delighted to be joined now here in studio by Stephen O'Byrne, who is a consultant and lobbyist and former press officer for the Progressive Democrats and I think Deputy Government Press Secretary if I'm not That's wrong. Right,
1: another era, yeah. And
3: also uh, on the phone by Frank <coughs> Fitzgerald, who's a PhD student in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at University Limerick. Frank and Stephen, you're very welcome to Taking Stock Today. You're very welcome. Now, Frank, i have got to start off with you because it's not the first time that a rural party has been suggested here in Ireland or even set up. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about the history of when this happened before?
4: Absolutely, um Maddie, Yeah, so it, they actually have a, a quite a long history since the foundation of the state of, of agrarian-type parties here. There were agrarian-type parties here in the in 20s and 30s and then Clan at Hamon in the 19, late 1940s and then in the mid-1950s, served in both inter-party governments. So they were a rural party and uh, agrarian elements as well. And it, it, it's kind of a, a trend in Irish political history that, that these parties have had somewhat of an electoral base. And they've, they've been a kind of a minor party with a certain amount of influence. So they were in both inter-party governments as part of those coalition formations. But the issue with them or for them tended to be that Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael tended to eat up a lot of their traditional bases. Hmm. So that tends to be an issue for them. But it, it isn't an entirely new issue, but it seems to have faded away for the last 40 or 50 years and seems to be re-emerging now with it, again, ironically, with the division of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael support and with this kind of new cleavage of environmentalism that Lee is to going kind of have it a more traditional base, really.
3: Yeah. So, Stephen, just to bring you in here, like, you know, th- those rural parties or agrarian parties, you uh, historically have been something that's slightly on the margins of the two main parties and another party which you could say was a bit like that is the Progressive Democrats, you know, build a void that was there at a particular time. You were involved in that party at the time. Um, just in terms of going on to business and seeing other businesses running, how different is it to be in a political party to, say, a normal everyday business? What are the other key considerations well, I, you have? I, I
1: think um, they were, and I presume still are, worlds apart because the, uh, the 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 dynamic of uh, political party uh, for the vast majority of members is one of voluntarism, you know. So it's it's a totally different model, you know. In in a, in a business, you have a management and you know people doing the the the, the business, the, the bidding of the of management. Whereas in a political party, uh, it's it's much more fluid and. Um, You know, it's more difficult to to organise because essentially, uh, unless there's a very broad sweep of enthusiasm for the leading uh, policy, say, of a particular party, in the case of the PDs back in the 1980s when the party was founded, the driving force was, you know, a a deep economic crisis. So, you know, people with with a stake in the country at the time, and a lot of them were business people Mm. up and down the country, who were deeply concerned about the drift of the, of the country into bankruptcy you might say uh, did rally to Desomali, who was the, the the first leader and uh, his message like of uh, I suppose economic austerity getting back to living within our means all of that had a, a real practical resonance for people in business at the time and uh, the party undoubtedly you know filled a void that was there because uh, you had Fianna Fáil and Fine um I suppose still you know, being large catch-all populist parties and therefore not really biting the bullet on the the key economic uh, uh, problems that were besetting the country at mm, the time. Mm.
3: Yeah, and um, th- that kind of gives us an idea of the political rationale for when there's a need for a new party, let's say. And Frank, I'm just going to bring you in to, to pick up on something that Stephen said there because it is that mix of managing a business, you know, with all of the structures that business needs, with a group of people, um, who are used to basically getting elected, so marrying those two things is is quite difficult, and and, um, it can be quite complex. But obviously, from a governance point of view, it's very onerous. So, can you just take us through some of the practical things that a political party has to do in order to be set up under the Electoral Act?
4: Absolutely. So, as you say. The the entire kind of process is is regulated by statute. And two of the primary le- pieces of legislation, although there are others, are the Electoral Act 1997 and the Electoral Reform Act 2022. The Electoral Act of 1997 is important because it established the current system of funding for political parties. That That's why that's particularly important. Electoral Reform Act 2022 builds on all of that existing legislation in terms of the existing basis for registering parties and it also moved the register of political parties to the Electoral Commission. So essentially, if a party wants to register to contest election, it can do one or three things. It can register to contest dollar or European parliament elections nationwide. It can do so to do to contest them in a particular area of the country or it can register to contest local elections alone. So essentially, each of those have two options. So they are either-or options. Mm. If if a party wishes to contest all European elections statewide, they either have to have one TD or MEP or 300 registered members, and 50% of them have to be registered to vote. If they just want to contest all European elections in a particular area of the state, again, if they have one or TD or one MEP, they can register on that basis, or alternatively, if they have 100 registered adult members and 50% of those are registered to vote, again, they're qualified. It's a little bit different then for if they simply want to contest local elections, in that they have to have three local authority members, or alternatively, 100 registered adult members, and again, half of those have to register to vote. So it's a question of having that capacity there, and they have to show that, before they seek to register, or else they will not be allowed to.
3: Mm. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. And I'm joined here in studio by Stephen O'Burns, consultant and lobbyist, and also on the line by Frank Fitzgerald's PhD student in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at the University of Limerick. Stephen, Frank's just raised a very important point there about the critical mass that's required underneath a political party. So it's not like a business in that you just need a lot of funding, you just need a lot of money. You actually have to demonstrate some support. And it speaks right back to that very point you made, which is about volunteerism.
1: Absolutely. And I think uh, the constraints there that uh, Frank outlines in respect of your ability to form a party and or rather you could form a party and we can see obviously an via social media at the moment there's all kinds of ragbag gatherings you know uh, around at the moment so i think it's a very uh, prudent and, and uh, constraint there that you must have an elected representative on board or our representatives so our three councillors or whatever the format is like but that you, you, you at least there is some minimum hurdle of public representation that you and your new, and your party must have already achieved. Obviously in that sense it would be uh, by uh, recruiting uh, these people who had previously been elected presumably mm. there is independence or under the banner of another party. But I think that's, very, that's an, a very important constraint, uh, particularly in the current era of social media and in my view like the cesspool that that has become for political commentary especially.
3: Yeah and look we see over in America that you know you can't access politics unless you have a huge amount of money so it's a good thing here that you have to actually demonstrate some support as well as having money
1: Yeah I I think I suppose the state's thing is really about the the dominance of uh adver- you know TV and TV, radio yeah. advertising and the cost of that uh but here I think it is it is valuable that there has to be some restraint on, you know, some kind of minimum bar that people have to uh, overcome uh, if they can, if they want to go before the electorate representing themselves for whatever cause and by whatever name.
3: Just on the advertising, when you bring it up there, do you see um, a development arising where that might change for us here in Ireland, where we actually do start to allow political advertising as politicians want to maybe speak directly to their public? Well,
1: I... I it's certainly happening now, I mean, via social media, you know, I mean, whether you're an existing uh, elective representative or a would-be uh, at, at, say, the forthcoming local elections next year, uh, and and European elections indeed, um, I mean, using Instagram and uh, Twitter feeds, and yeah. it's all happening. I mean, and I suppose the first thing, you, one of the first things you need as a candidate and therefore which the political parties have to face in terms of cost, you know, is a very professional social media operation, you know, with people who... Can make videos, who can you know help people to yeah. do attractive messages and all that side of th- things simply didn't exist. Absolutely. You know when I was busi- yeah. when I was busily involved in politics in the eighties and nineties.
3: Nor I, thank God, <laughs> um, Frank. I'll bring you back in here about that running cost from a wider perspective, if I can, please, because you know where political parties get their funding from is obviously partly from the state, but they can fundraise as well. But any idea of how much it might cost to actually start up a party?
4: It's a very good question. It, it's it's kind of a good question to answer in that, like, it, it is a kind of both a running cost question and a set of cost question. I think the set of costs kind of bleed into the, the running costs in that to kind of have a party and to establish a party, those costs of, of, of having facilities and, and being able to print, print materials and things like that, they are then bled into the actual cost of running the party. There, there isn't an the, the exact kind of figure that can be given for it but I would say probably a couple of hundred thousand would be a kind of baseline year-on-year year if the Standards and Public Office Commission reports or anything go by of parties' annual accounts. And the other thing about it as well is that in terms of the state funding, if you look at even the smaller parties that are eligible for state funding, executive funding on the basis of having re- reached or exceeded 2% of the vote threshold. They receive in 2021 about 297 thousand euros, mm. and they are one of the smaller parties. And even beyond that, all parties, including Fianna Fáil, including Fianna Gael, struggle to make up those costs. So it just shows you that Social Democrats are receiving 297 euros. Excuse me, 297 thousand euros in extra funding, and all the parties are still struggling. it the amount that it costs to actually run a party probably greatly exceeds that. Yeah, and the, the other the other side to it as well is then it's just managing that and kind of being able to manage that i imagine when you're setting up a party uh, it's i suppose it's one thing when you have a party if you're feeling full or you're feeling gale, you have that brand you have the lottery raffles and things like that but it, it must be much more difficult one would imagine for a party to be trying to establish itself and seek registration if it doesn't have that branch, Yeah. and a chicken and, and, and yeah, it's an egg situation it, really, it, isn't exactly
3: it? Exactly. As you're just going to say, it's like success breeds success. And mm. Stephen, you'd very often hear parties referred to as a machine. And um, it is that sort of catch-22 situation where it's based and calculated on the amount of TDs and deputies that you have. Ergo, that dictates how many you can employ. Ergo, that the amount made, of money you're going to get and then it's about how much fit you are going into a campaign so when you were working for the progressive democrats um did you see that you know side of things as a big barrier to or did you just behave in government as if you were as big a party as the other oh
1: gosh no i mean you're absolutely right uh you know now the, the situation changed uh, dramatically i mean i ceased to work directly uh, with the PDs back in 1995, though I continued to work on a consultancy basis at election time for probably the following 15 years. But certainly, uh, the problems you face as a small party uh, back then, you know, were absolutely, you know, enormous because you would nothing like this. Uh, you know, Frank has outlined there the the, the you know the, the public purse is very generous, really. You know, especially even to small parties on two percent being the threshold but uh i mean back then there was no public uh, sorry there was no state funding at all so you know you were relying on the 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 um the, you know the various fundraising events the golf outings and uh, church gate collections and everything of, of, of historical fame yeah. but i guess you know that i i can understand and i think the it's a healthier model to be uh supported by the st- that our politics is supported by the state um and it you know it, it, it probably it evolved largely because of controversy around you know uh, secret payments or donations to politicians and so forth but uh, I think there's um I have still some reservation about the extent to which the public purse, uh is funding politics and in particular the difficulties faced by new entrants you know i mean it is a it's a it's a catch 22 there as you describe it that they're caught in because uh they need to reach the 2% threshold um to for, you know to qualify for funding uh, i you know and i even going back to my own time this was a factor and it is this because of the nastiness that surrounds the whole political process which leads, one, to the difficulty in recruiting good candidates. You know, business people in particular will are very reluctant to get into that uh, um, political arena at all. But secondly then, uh, you know, the... the raising the money becomes extremely difficult because even though people may be willing to support the cause uh, if your name appears in print as a don as a as a donor yes, to a political party this- all sorts of connotations you. You you know, think back recently uh, Pascal Dunhu's episode with that businessman Michael Stone. I mean, for goodness sake, you know, he had paid for a couple of posters and all all hell broke loose.
3: Just final word to you, Frank, on this, lest we we sound terribly negative about the potential of a new political party (laughs) and all of the bad things that are associated with it. What are the pluses of starting up something new?
4: Well, I suppose... From a kind of representation perspective, even we think that the conception of the rural party, obviously there are, there are there are different views on on their potential policy platform, but it, it allows potential representation of other aspects of society that may not be as well represented otherwise. Like as as Stephen mentioned, there just the conception of Fianna Fáil and probably to, to the same extent Fianna Gael up until the nineteen eighties or nineties, the catch-all party maybe made it so wide-ranging that they, they couldn't necessarily represent all demographics or, or particularly important demographics as acutely as it would otherwise have been possible to do, and then the PD is really filled that void, and this seems to be the same for the, for a potential rural party, but alternatively, it's one thing to have a, a potential, what we you're political science as the party, or a, a electoral cleavage, an area of concerned people that's large enough Then to get electoral support for. It's another thing then to be able to kind of, firstly, be able to kind of navigate that area so as to avoid splitting it. So Mm. at the moment it looks like there's two different rural party groupings that are prospective that may want to register as parties. That, that could potentially split them in itself. That's an issue, and isn't the it? The, the identity
3: them. issue is a big one for them. It's sort of sometimes when you read it, it's yeah. like the people's front of Judea. But unfortunately, <laughs> we've run out of time uh, on this one for now. Thank you both very much for your insights today. That was Stephen O'Byrne, consultant you, and lobbyist, and also Frank Fitzgerald of University of Limerick. Thank you. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. And after the break, we're going to turn our attention to the ever-evolving world of journalism. Our journalists facing an existential crisis in this new modern world? Well, our panel will be discussing it all after this short break. you welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. Now, whether we like it or not, news and the media play such an integral part in politics and in public life. But how do you consume your news? Are you still an avid daily newspaper reader like me? Or do you dip in and out of social media feeds to catch the latest headlines? Well, Reuters uh, produced some research this week and one of the topics that they looked at was the issue of journalism itself and how journalism and journalists are being affected by the new media environment. So I'm delighted to be joined now by Dr Eimear Connolly, who has uh, completed her own doctorate on the work of the modern journalist and also by the renowned Irish independent journalist and former news editor, Liam Collins. You're both very welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Mandy. Hi, Mandy.
3: Now Eimear, I'm going to start with you because you've conducted your own research into this uh, issue. Just talk to us a little bit about who you spoke to for the research and, and an overview of what you kind of learned.
0: Okay, so um, for the research, I interviewed 25 people working in the media in Ireland. Six of them media owners, uh, seven editors or news editors, and 12 um, journalists uh, uh, and photo journalists. So working across the um, print, broadcast, and online media. Um, national and, and regional spread. So all of the national media organisations were contacted um, and also a good spread of regional broadcast and uh, print organisations.
3: Mm, quite a good mix there. So you're getting the whole industry from kind of top to, to, to bottom. What did you find when you, when you conducted this research about the issue of journalism in particular?
0: Okay, I suppose having worked in journalism myself for many years, I had all of my own uh, preconceptions, notions, etc. But I really wanted to see what um, the, the sample uh, carefully selected uh, thought in terms of how the industry had changed uh, the impact on themselves and the impact on, um, on, on ultimately on society. So what I found... Um, One thing that did surprise me was the huge difference between experiences of those working regionally and those working in the national press, where regionally, um, not exclusively, but by and large, those working in the regional press would say, we're completely run off our feet. We're completely stretched. We don't have enough resources. Um, You know, we're asked to cover uh, very important media stories from the desk, we're not getting out and about enough. We are not given the scope to do investigative journalism. And that was, by and large, a negative picture from the regional press. Um, on a national level, um, I found that the, the journalists working nationally, many of who had previously worked in the regional press, would say such a difference, a lot more time, a lot more resources, way more scope for um doing a bit of digging, doing a bit of investigative journalism, which is essential. Mm. Um, And uh, they had, you know, if they were asked, to To spend X number of weeks on an investigative story, there was that time in that there was a bit of backfill. On the regional level, none, absolutely none. Five of the journalists who, who were interviewed, um, mainly regional, I think one of them national, uh, said that they did investigative journalism in their own time, were never paid for it, never got time back, but because of the love of the industry. And again, all of the, all of the participants would say that, you know, they really loved their, their jobs. They loved the work that they were doing. Nobody was saying, I want to do 9 to 5 and go home at 5 o'clock. It, there was a lot of give there, mm. um, but it was really a case of, look, you know, this burnout. Mm. Uh, one of them said it was like a hamster on a tread a tread wheel. Um, and, and then I found that um, one, of the, one of the participants, a journalist who would worked in a national tabloid um just felt you know there was a panic if she didn't upskill her job wouldn't be there anymore um and she felt that the whole social media side of it, which be- was becoming so dominant, um, really was something that she didn't want to do. She upskilled and she left. And even since I did my interviews, another two of the participants, um, both working in the regional press, one in broadcast, one in print, have left the industry and have gone into PR. So right. a lot of them would have said to me, some of the national um, uh, journalists as well would have said to me quietly, look, you know... I want to get out of this industry. I love it, love it, love it. But I want to get out because I just cannot sustain the 24-7 commitment that is now a requirement of the job. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, Liam, just to bring you in here, I suppose that's the reason we're having this conversation to see if the journalism as a profession is something that's itself under threat. Now, you've been a journalist, you're still a journalist and you've been an an editor on one of the the highest-selling newspapers in, in Ireland. And you've also you know, had a long career that's seen that tr- transition from the on-the-scene journalism to more kind of more desk-based industry. Uh, and I remember you writing about it a number of years ago, that, that importance of getting out there even before COVID. But can you just explain to us why, you know, you think getting out there, you know, meeting people is actually such an integral part of the profession of journalism?
5: I think that, you know, face-to-face meetings with people are so important. And, um, as news editor of the, the Sunday Independent, I used to try and get reporters to have a meeting on Tuesday and then tell them I didn't really want to see them until Thursday afternoon. I wanted them to be working, but I wanted them to be out there uh, meeting people, have, getting contact. And I think that that was the element we learned as young reporters in the provincial papers and in when I first came to Dublin, you know, you're going out to receptions, you were meeting ministers, you're meeting prominent businessmen, and you knew that when, they, when you called them, that they would know who you they were talking to, and so that you would get a very kind of honest answer from them. And you would um, not always give you a story, but they certainly would... Um, tell you whether a story was
3: worth pursuing or whether it wasn't. Mm -hmm. And, Emer, just to bring you back in here, like, it's not that anybody would choose to, uh, you know, change the profession in this way, but there are reducing revenues, there's reduced advertising, there's more competition for advertising, so there's less staff, it means tougher editorial decisions for people like Liam, more and more news out there. So, you, did you come up with any solutions like what's the answer to, to allowing journalists to, to do what they do instead of just sitting behind the desk?
0: Yes um, absolutely I, 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 I see see your point Mandy uh, revenues are down that's realistic you know th- th- there's different consumption patterns of news now as you say social media online which doesn't bring in the same revenue um, but what I found is that the newsroom was always the place hit and um, where there was going to be cutbacks. It was the newsroom, not the commercial department. It was the newsroom. Um, one example of a really good business uh, initiative was um, has been instigated by the Limerick Leader, which is, is, is a really super um, regional uh, publication that really has a strong grasp of the online, more so than most of the others. Uh, the limited Theatre has, has really led led the regionals uh, in terms of moving forward. They've developed um, uh, or generated revenue from from their digital archives. Um, and I know other newspapers are doing similar from selling um, their photography, mm. um, which again is, is high quality. Um, and I think that other, um, particularly where I see the problem regionally, you know, regional... Um, regional um, media organisations, broadcast and print. But, the, you know, they can develop partnerships with, for example, you know, good citizen journalism, where there's a lot of money being made. Mm-hmm. Um, a really good synergy, I found, um, that works well is where um, there's been some kind of consolidation between the Connacht Tribune in Galway and Galway BFM. The Tribune bought Galway BFM um in 2006 and a lot of sharing of stories i know people say oh you know that's kind of compromising in order to survive Mm. unfortunately that's what is needed in some media organizations because for example one really good uh, newspaper and not biased because i worked there the clear people set up in in 2005 And, and as lee mentioned there we were given laptops we were told, off you go, you know, come in on a Monday, come in on a Tuesday, off you go, we don't want to see you. We had a very small newsroom, um, and there was a lot of really um, wonderful journalism done. Unfortunately, the paper is closed now. Mm. You know, so you look at it and you say, a lot, like, we were were never curtailed. It was like... um, I was, told, I was allowed at one stage to go to Dublin for two months and cover a court case. Um, and there was plenty of backfill there. There was no question of, come back, we need, we need you to cover a council meeting. Um, and that was so unusual for a regional publication. But unfortunately, um, that's now closed four years ago. So, you know, you kind of look at it and say, you know, we, we can be ambitious, but not too much so. But definitely, you know, I really think it's up to commercial um, wings off media organisations to say, look, what can we do here? So that if somebody leaves a newsroom that they're going to be replaced because um, I do see in, in more recent months in particular where people are leaving regional newsrooms, they are being replaced but during my research um, which spanned between 2010 and 2020, there was that sense participants were repeatedly telling me if somebody leaves, if somebody retires, they're not being replaced. I yeah. see a little bit of a change, which is a welcome change uh, in that trend in recent months, in the regional press in particular, which is welcome.
3: Yeah, and regional press, Liam, so important. As, as Emer said earlier, like so many of our really brilliant journalists have kind of grown up through the, the provincial oh, press process.
5: Oh, ab- absolutely, that's where, where you learn your craft or trade. And it's very sad to, to, that some some regional papers don't even cover courts anymore, which was part of their brief, both as a newspaper and to sell newspapers. But I, I, I would like to, to stress that, you know, there is still great journalism going on in the newspaper business, and I think that it's very tough with the 24-hour mm. news cycle, so the, the, the browser has become the phone, But when you want to get the real details of a story, I think you have to go to the reputable news organizations like The Independent and like The Times and, you know, I think, and and other papers who are working in, in, in the business in Ireland. And, you know, we had the, the old... Uh, saying who, where, when, why and what. Mm. And if you can answer those five kind of W's you have the story and you're telling people the full fact. Mm. Whereas with a lot of the you know, online journalism for all its speed it's it's like the old editions of, 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 of the evening newspapers years ago. You you were getting um, the headline but the, the, the real story, the meat of the story wasn't coming through. And I think that that is what newspapers, uh, all newspapers have to
3: develop. So that... that they have a reputable yeah, and, and that and, and that really speaks to the core of your research, really, Emer. Sorry to cut across you there, Liam. I just wanted to leave a final word to Emer on this because okay. it's that notion of trust, isn't it, that is is really important. But I looking at the Reuters research that I mentioned at the outset there, um, Ireland fares very well when it comes to how trusted our media are here in Ireland, right across the board. So there is that quality still coming through, despite the challenges.
0: There is, absolutely. And, and I'm totally on, on Liam's page in terms of, you know, you know, in an era where fake news is becoming more prevalent. You want the reliable content out there. You want to, uh, to know that what you're reading um, or, or listening to is actually correct. Unfortunately, though, um, as we saw in the writer's report, the younger population are not yeah. convinced because, you know, they're, they're clicking. Um, I taught journalism for the first time in UL in 2010 and I remember asking students, okay, who reads the local paper? Mm. Nobody. Who reads the national paper? You might have one or two reading it online. By the time I finished teaching journalism in, in, in University of Galway um, five years ago, there was absolutely nobody touching any of the mainstream or the legacy media organizations as we describe them. And um, so that is a concern in that, you know, Lean likes to, to read verified content. You do, Mandy. I do as well. But the younger population, they're looking more up to the influencers. Um, and that's where I see, you know, the influencers, um, citizen journalism, there is a role there, we can't run away from it anymore, that they can link up with the traditional media organisations. You know, we know circulation is falling, will continue to fall, but in terms of going forward, in terms of the online, in terms of the strong uh, audio, uh, visual, video, all of that, um, I think certainly there is absolutely a future but in a different, in a very different guise. Mm. Um, and it really is a case of we need to adapt to change and look at, as you say, a range of solutions.
3: Right. Last word to you on this, Liam. Very briefly, when you were setting out in the 80s, journalism was a sexy profession. Is it still something that uh, people see as a sexy profession to go into nowadays?
5: Oh, I, I do. I still think that when <laughs> influential people pick up a newspaper or see a story in a newspaper, it has far more impact than the uh, online or the, the social media, all that kind of uh, traffic that goes through so fast. So I think there is still a role. Um, and I think newspapers uh, are good, in my opinion, very good in some cases. And they probably have to be better. You know, it's a harder environment legally and socially, but, you know, they have to present a product that young people will want to read as yeah. well as everybody else.
3: Yeah, well, look, undoubtedly, there's lots of challenges ahead, but thank you both very much for giving us your very valuable insights here today. That was Dr. Emer Connolly and Liam Collins of the Irish Independent. Thank you both very much for being on News Talk today. Thanks, Mandy. Thank you. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. After the break, we'll be shedding light on the intriguing investments being made by the Saudi Arabian Sovereign Wealth Fund. From tech startups to football teams, discover the vast range of opportunities that this fund is exploring right across the globe. That's coming up after this short break. Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Andy Johnson. And finally, today, it's been at the centre of the recent Live Golf PGA Tour Ferrari. It's involved in everything from football teams to tech startups and football players. And it's called the Saudi Arabia Public Investment Fund. But what is it? Who runs it? And where is the money going to? We're joined now by Jonathan Geer, who is a senior foreign policy and national security correspondent, global affairs for Vox. Jonathan, you're very welcome to Taking Stock.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
3: Now, before we get stuck into the detail of this, and I know you've been writing extensively about it recently, just remind us what exactly the Saudi Arabia Public Investment Fund is and how it started in the first place.
2: So this is a massive sovereign wealth fund, uh, essentially overseen by Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, the, the young crown prince of Saudi Arabia, who's trying to remake the world in his own image and just using tons of dollars uh, in all sorts of different forums, arts, culture, startups, investments, sports. And the fund keeps growing. So, you know, it's about a half trillion dollars, U.S. dollars, right now. And it's expected to, you know, possibly double in the next couple of decades. And at this particular moment of a global financial credit crunch, Many industries, uh, I focused on Silicon Valley recently, but also sport, uh, also film, uh, media are coming to depend on Saudi investments as a kind of, you know, we've heard the term sport washing, but it, it's really a, a global way that the Saudi Arabia reputation is being rehabilitated just five years after the heinous murder of the Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi and many other Uh, foreign policy misadventures that MBS has overseen, a war in Yemen, a crackdown on his own people in Saudi Arabia. And throughout, he's used uh, major investments to create an image of himself as a reformer.
3: Yeah, it's an incredible tool that they're using to sort of position Saudi Arabia on the geopolitical chessboard, if you like. Where do they kind of sit in those global kind of, you know, movements that are going on now between America, China, Russia, are they a main player? Are they a sub-main player?
2: Well, I think Saudi Arabia, to be fair, has been really savvy in how it's navigating what people are calling the great power competition moment, where you have Russia and China, these huge, massive countries with massive military power competing with the United States and, and Western Europe and NATO and, and so forth. And in contrast, you have Saudi Arabia really playing both sides, pretty expertly, getting what it wants from the United States, getting what it wants from Asia, uh, making you know pretty sound investments, huge investments in industries that are really popular, and end up making it look quite good. So this golf example of of the proposed Live Golf PGA Tour merger. I think is a good example of that because it's golf, it's mm. friendly, mm. it's uh it's a way to get on people's TV screens and, and bring people together and sort of make people forget that this is a, a quite repressive country that is anything but open minded when it comes to human rights.
3: Absolutely. And in a, if you wanted a clearer demonstration of how money talks you probably don't need to look much further than this fund because as you say uh, the live golf tournament has seen 360 in just one year but also president biden he's had a quite a significant u-turn when it comes to this fund and even mohammed bin al-salman himself, al-Salman himself hasn't he
2: indeed of, of course you know president biden had pledged to make Saudi Arabia pariah when he was a candidate on the presidential campaign trail. Then last summer he goes and fist bumps MBS and it sort of, you know, brought the country much closer. And I think it to some extent, I don't want to blame President Biden because you know geopolitics means you often do have to meet with unsavory folks, but it, the United States has given top cover for major industries, for Silicon Valley startups, for private equity and venture capital firms in the US and the world. Because if the president is meeting with MBS and only very quietly talking about human rights issues, then why wouldn't major financial institutions and industries across the globe?
3: Absolutely. And and you mentioned it earlier, that, that dreadful killing of the journalist Jamal Kasaji, It seemed to change things for a time. Um, and it seemed to really stop people and make them think about... Um, alliances with MBS, as he likes to be called. But has it really actually changed things?
2: Well, well, I think this is, you know, one of the great tragedies, not just because, you know, he was a columnist for The Washington Post and as a fellow journalist, you know, it's an absolute travesty. But I think it represents how rogue this young crown prince MBS is. Mm. He is not representative of the Saudi people. He, according to experts and, and and Saudis I've spoken to, is not trustworthy, may not hold up his end of the deal uh, when it when it comes to agreements with companies, investments, or with governments like the United States or Western Europe.
4: Mm. So he's
2: a really risky interlocutor. And because there has only been very limited accountability for this young crown prince who may be in power, you know, he's in his 30s, he may be in power well into his 80s, uh, it means that... You know, such outbursts may happen again. And, and folks are currently in prison in Saudi Arabia for exercising their their uh, criticisms of, of the government there.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's still um, a lot of human rights issues there. But I mean, they're not the stories that are coming from Saudi Arabia at the moment. You're just hearing them talking about premiership football teams, big golf tournaments, and also... Lots of investment in Silicon Valley, which we're going to get into in in a second. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm talking to Jonathan Geyer, who covers foreign policy and national security and global affairs for Vox. Jonathan, yeah, the the Silicon Valley uh, alliances with this sovereign wealth fund and their eagerness uh, is 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 incredible to sort of legitimise uh, this young crown prince in particular, they seem to be extremely excited by him. Why do you think that is, apart from the obvious money? What well, the, makes money them...
2: the money is a big deal. Yeah. Um, th- there was a kind of massive investment conference in March in in Miami, and you had someone like Adam Newman, who founded WeWork and is kind of one of these buzzy startup founders, describing MBS himself as a founder, and all of these major venture capitalists were chiming in saying how great it is, that they've been visiting the country. And it is true, there are major social changes happening in Saudi Arabia. Uh, the country has movie theaters and concerts and a whole startup and investment culture that it really didn't have any time previously. But let's be clear, it has not come with any political rights. And there's so many limitations that endure on, on women's rights, etc. So, it's, it's really a veneer of reform that MBS represents, and it's sort of disturbing that the statute of limitations on outrage when it comes to the killing of Jamal Khashoggi and other heinous crimes pursued by Saudi Arabia have sort of worn off, especially in Silicon Valley. It's
3: interesting you mention Adam Newman then we've we've covered him a lot on this program in particular the downfall of Waywork but uh, when I was reading your piece it sort of reminded me that, that um uh MBS may be kind of positioning himself as one of those Silicon Valley type CEOs where the CEO is the celebrity factor if you like and then people start to not really look behind the curtain so much but you might just talk us through some of the figures that have been involved in those um investments in silicon valley the likes of uber and and the other big companies that they've invested in
2: right so the, so the public investment fund has through softbank and other investment vehicles just put a massive amount of capital into silicon valley so a lot of the startups uh, about 10 years ago that you know were just riding high uber of course but um many others that you know weren't really profitable uh, Doordash, Slack, and of course WeWork—we're getting money through these conduits. And at the time, the Wall Street Journal said this was just an unprecedented amount of money. So I think that really calmed down for a period after the Khashoggi assassination, and when the reputation of MBS was at its low. But over time, he's sort of been welcomed back into these circles. The major investment uh, venture capital group Andreessen Horowitz has been hosting delegations to Saudi Arabia talking about how great of an environment it is. Uh, There are real changes. And and I would just add one thing is Mm. that the the mood in the United States is very fearful of China's rise. And so Saudi Arabia is playing this quite smartly and investing in a lot of uh, new startups that work on military technologies because they do want to counter that supposed threat of China.
3: And business builds alliances and then alliances politically develop. So who knows, that might be the ultimate destination for this. Just before I let you go, I wanted to get a sense of some of the infrastructural developments that are happening in Saudi Arabia. I know they have this enclave that seems like utopia. And how do the, the public in in Saudi, what do the Saudi people think of this? Is there awareness of, of what's going on? externally, you know, I mean, in a a global sense, is there much awareness of this investment fund?
2: Well, it's it's hard to get a beat on Saudi public opinions because I think some of the changes are really great for Saudi society. But again, this is a monarchy. It's not really representative. And as you mentioned, there's this sort of techno-utopia in the desert, Neom, that's a whole new city, you know, a so-called smart city. But if you know modern technology, it's really like a surveillance city. With incredible constructions, just tens or hundreds, I believe, of billions of dollars being spent there. So for someone like Adam Newman of WeWork and others, there's incredible opportunity and more broadly for startups and international companies to expand their market in Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. Uh, So – A lot of big, massive landmark construction, but the real reforms, I think, in Saudi Arabia are pretty much lacking.
3: Mm. And what's their sell towards the people who actually live in Saudi Arabia?
2: Well, I, I think, you know, there is something quite optimistic about having a crown prince in his 30s trying to turn this country around that has been dominated by a kind of council of of elderly royals for mm. generations. So there is a real hope, and if you look around the Middle East, it is a lot of dictators who are pretty old and stuffy and not that original. So I don't want to say that MBS is, uh, you know, doesn't have some good ideas, but they must be put into the context of these human rights violations and, and lack of political rights That I think would disturb just about anyone uh, in Europe, in the United States and elsewhere.
3: Well, he's certainly done a very good job at sort of repositioning himself and an entire country. But just before finally, again, before I let you go, if I can, uh, there's always when you see these type of investments and politically some some liaisons with the media um, and art and entertainment because look, that's the first port of call really when you're trying to yeah, engage with public. So are they involved in this space a lot?
2: Well, absolutely. They've had these so-called Davos in the desert conferences. I attended one in New York earlier this year, ran into Jared Kushner there, uh, obviously Trump's son-in-law, Middle East advisor, a lot of big names they're using just about anyone they can to serve as ambassadors, among them really prominent Silicon Valley names. And look, $3 trillion fund by 2030, that's what they're predicting. This is not going to be the last we hear of the public investment fund. I think golf is just the most recent foray.
3: Yeah, and uh, I just got to mention the World Cup now that you've brought golf back into it again. The suggestions that that's what they're really aiming for when it comes to their investment in premiership sport and football and bringing Ronaldo there and, and those big names.
2: Absolutely. And, and stay tuned, you know, if it's going to be film industry, if it's going to be some of the media outlets we like to consume, uh, Saudi dollars are basically everywhere.
3: Saudi dollars are basically everywhere. I think that's the way we are going to leave that one. Jonathan Geyer, thank you so much for joining us today. That was Jonathan Geyer, who's covering foreign policy, national security and global affairs for Fox.
2: Thanks so much.
3: But well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings. We're always available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app. My thanks as always to all of today's guests and to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with thanks also to Simon Keane on research and Hugo Da Silva on sound. Jonathan McRae's up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.